Hello and welcome to episode 56 of the Alfa Romeo Driver podcast, brought to you by the Alfa Romeo Owners Club. I'm Gus Walbrick and with me this afternoon I have the club's S head registrar and owner of the Berkshire-based Alfa specialist Alfa 8, Adrian Jardine. Good afternoon, Adrian. Good afternoon, Guy. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Very good. Thank you very much. Excellent. So, uh, usual question that we start these podcasts with. Um, obviously, you're you're well known in the, the Alfa community for the business that you run, but how did you get involved in Alphas in the first place? Well, somewhat similar to many others who I think you've you've interviewed for podcasts, Guy, is I first ever car was an Alpha suit. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was unique. Clearly not. Uh, so yeah, that was that was a quite a random thing, really. Having grown I've grown up with cars. My my father is a vintage and veteran car. Uh, restore or whatever you want to say and then when it got to that time I actually went hunting for either a Riley Elf or a Wolseley Hornet and luckily I'd failed to find <laughs> one that wasn't a complete basket case and we we used to walk around the village with a dog and there was an Alpha Sud uh, with a little for sale sign on it which my father was semi he was, oh, yeah, they're, yeah, they're good. Uh, rusty, but they're good. So we went back home, looked in Auto Trader to compare, not sorry, not Auto Trader, Exchange of Martin. And uh, it was there, but it didn't have a price on it. It was advertised there anyway. Rang the guy. He'd had it advertised for three or four weeks, couldn't sell it because he didn't put a price in my mind. But anyway, so I ended up buying it. And I didn't actually know how great they were because i'd not got anything to compare it to yeah. but yeah it was fantastic uh, and it was like freedom it was really it's probably the most emotive car i've ever owned in that it, it did that was it you know you could go out go away from home and um, and what have you and in my first i don't know if i should actually say this to be broadcast but in my first month of ownership bearing in mind i was still at school doing my a levels and this was 1986 or seven seven uh, I spent £700 on petrol in the first <laughs> month. So you can imagine I was literally driving all day, every day. Didn't go to school, didn't do anyway, doesn't matter. Took it to university. So it didn't affect, didn't adversely affect your A-levels that you weren't... Um... Oh, it did. Big <laughs> time. Just not not but, enough to keep you out of university. No, they let me in <laughs> for one reason or another. Luckily, I don't know why, but there we go. Um, so yes, yes. Uh, and then, um, so I, I had it uni. I then had three more to keep it on the road. Because <laughs> I was going to say another, another common theme on the podcast is my first car was an Alpha Sud, and that didn't last long. And my second car, <laughs> yeah. Well, I kept the core unit actually, uh, and and strangely enough, learned there was I was at Brunel, and uh, we did a we had a little motor club there, which actually had a workshop. Yeah which was really the whole point. And there was a little clan of folk who would always hang out there, either learning to do cars or, or working on their cars or what have you. Uh, so that was where I learned to MIG weld, funnily enough. And um, I had these cars because it was a massive car park, which is why you could just have cars lying around, as many people did. I wasn't unique yeah. in having three spare alphas. And, and I would just swap bits over and, yeah, learn the craft, I guess. And drove it like an idiot which was fab then that was what promoted uh, onwards and upwards 
So I still had it when I graduated. Right. Did you then move on to something else after graduation or? It's slightly integrated with the whole beginning of Alpha Aid, actually. So I, the intention was when I was growing up as a kid was that, oh, I'm going to earn lots of money and then I can play and race my Ferraris at weekends. That was the yeah. plan. Then reality obviously gradually comes upon you and engineers. So I graduated in 91. Engineers never really earned a lot of money. And I thought money was the answer because I'd, I'd, I'd worked for not only, well, with my father, but then I worked at, worked at a normal garage when I was 16 in the meantime, because naturally, you know, I'd grown up with dirty yeah. fingernails. There's pictures of me with at four hanging off the back of dad's traction engine type thing. So, uh, and I had already six Austin sevens in pieces by the time I was 16, which I never did finish putting <laughs> to one together. But yeah, I worked at a garage and it, it did, uh, Datsun, as was then Z specialist, learned quite a bit was building gearboxes then for them at 16 or something in the summer. Yeah, 16. Then I went between school and in the summer holidays, 17 and 18, I worked for a chap called Richard Ianson in Gloucester Way. He did Bugattis and ERAs. He looked after Nick Mason's Type 35 and his his, uh, ERA, which number I forget, and Type 59 of John Marks, and then we were building some cars and some other stuff. So that was a really good thing. That was actually, that was one time I I got a ride up the road in Nick Mason's 250 GTO. <laughs> so of course, this this doesn't help with respect to being a philanthropist or whatever, in terms of all, all I could see around me was just beautiful, stunning cars. Yeah. And they were stupid money. You know, he, well, Nick had turned down 4 million quid for his 250 GT. I'm looking at it going, right, how do I get that? How am I going to achieve that? <laughs> Needless to it say. It occur to you at the time that none of the people who owned those cars had got the money through engineering. No, no, not at all. <laughs> this didn't, this wasn't this correlation really. And it's just, no, no, I had to have the education through life, but I did have some fun times then actually, you know, just, yeah, yeah. Lots of access to some seriously exotic stuff never drove anything but just being around yeah. it was and they were motivated because everybody everybody was a petrol head doesn't matter whether whether they've they've not got a penny or they've got millions it's just a petrol you've got common ground yeah. and you get excited and i'd say that that they're as excited for your enthusiasm as you are for theirs if that makes yeah, sense, which is it's a great just a great community so anyway back to where that led to so that plan didn't work. I went and did some, I briefly actually tried to do some life insurance sales, which was a very good learning curve in terms of people, uh, communication, but very tough in reality. So that didn't last very long. And then went back to doing contract CAD work, which was, was pretty good money, but mind-numbingly boring. Uh, and I was still playing with cars on the side. I built a Westfield 7 kit car, actually, while I was at uni and ran that as my and took my alpha suit off the road for more bodywork. actually um ran that for a for a whole year all through the winter with no heater and stuff like that with just a, a duvet over over you so you had your hand under the duvet on the gear lever and the other hand above freezing on the steering wheel so yes i i did that they left 
did the contract care and went, this is a bit boring. And the business of mending cars for other folk on the side, a lot of which naturally, because I'd had alphas around, were alphas coming to yeah. me, suits, suits and 33s, really. And then one night, uh, I, it were, I'm in a pub with a mate, inevitably, and after several jars of liquid, we're like, yeah, why don't we set up a business? Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. And his uh, brother-in-law had a an Audi kind of braking specialist, actually, and was doing really well. So you've got to go back and bear in mind, there's no internet. Yeah. This was just exchange of miles and auto trader. And uh, he said, we should do that. And I'm like, yeah, okay, cool, whatever. Let's do something then. What should we do it then? I said, well, we've got to do it in alphas because that's what I know. So I then had a lead into a dealer over in the East End somewhere, Dartford Way, that had just gone bust. So back then, you used to have to physically get into contact with the, um, the, administrator. the administrator folks and put your bids in for what you wanted. So obviously everything was for sale, but that lot. So I went down there and uh, had a very friendly conversation, so we say. So my bid was um, 100 quid higher than the best bid. <laughs> and that got us something like 30 grand's worth of stock for about 2%, something like yeah. that. Now, the good bit about that, which I've learned in the next 30 years, was that it was really good stock because it was a really young dealer that really failed from day one, which is, wasn't untypical of Alfa Romeo yeah. dealers back then. But the good bit of that was that the stock was fresh and current and hadn't been robbed or even run down. So after that, you know, I bought stocks from things and you'd find that the stock printout was absolutely nothing to do with what was actually there. All the good stuff had gone and you were left with the stuff that sat on the shelves for five or 10 yeah. years. So anyway, got a little premises set up with this chap. He had a, he worked anyway. So he put a chunk of money in and cut another long story short, really, I was doing seven in the morning till two in the morning, seven days a week waking up under because we were mending cars and braking yeah. cars and i'd yeah i'd often i'd wake up under a car and go oh and then just carry on changing the clutch or whatever it was <laughs> and i had my dog roti then and he would i'd look at he'd just crawled under the car and was just asleep next to me so, I, so we did that the other chap so his plan was to work in the business when he'd finished his day's work and at weekends and stuff and that was fine but his his missus started to give him a little bit of pressure because he was never at home and then she wanted to go on holiday and all this stuff. And anyway, a year later, we fell out due to a, a mismatch of agreement on work levels and stuff like that. As often happens, I bought him out and that was kind of, well, that was the beginning of Alfred really was when we were doing that. We were breaking a lot of cars. I was buying late 33s damaged crashed yes. or whatever yes. which had really it was there weren't there was there were no competitors at that time because i remember the exchange mart always had cubley's adverts mangalexi adverts the parts in there and then there was me with advertising you know bits so and the other alpha specialists started to come down and like buy a front end off a 33 because they'd bought a crashed one and then they could mend it. Yeah. And, and that world was that world was buoyant then. And I ended up, the space we had was quite good. I could have 20 cars around or something at the time. And then I had a one-bay workshop, one-bay of parts, one-bay of office type thing. It was like a big, wide, triple garage. Yeah. And that was it. So, yeah, great. And then um, after we'd fallen out, 
he got quite upset and it wasn't didn't have planning permission for what we were doing so he shafted me to the planning <laughs> department <laughs> so we had to move at that time i met uh paul who's my chief mechanic technician and he he was at uni with me actually but he was a year below and we'd never talked but he had rear wheel drive alphas so he had juliettas and alfettas lying around at the university and i was that other alpha idiot and he was the other alpha idiot type thing but we didn't really we had mutual contacts but we didn't really anyway he had a 33 which he crashed and came to me one day for some front end bits and he's still with me 27 years later so we moved we moved to old windsor which was much much bigger we always had about 60 cars that side of the business grew we do you remember minari having built my Westfield when I was um, at uni, I thought there's got to be, the difficult part was with a Minari, if you wanted to build one, was you had to buy your 33 or Sud, actually. Then you obviously had to take that apart and you then had to prepare and build that into your Minari. Well, technically that's three spaces in my mind. And I thought, is there an opportunity to provide a kit so that, they didn't have to buy a car. They could buy everything they needed to make the Minari. And then it would just come in a box effectively. Yeah. When I'm buying like late cars, you know, I could end up with like a, a 10,000 mile, 16 mile, 33. And it had all the mechanical parts and the wiring loom and everything yeah. that you needed for your Minari. So I actually spoke to the guys at Minari, got on very well with them. And they, that grew. We did a lot of the supplying of kits for Minaris. And even if... If a car was in, so you'd get the identity of that car because I'd just strip everything off it. And if, let's say, it had a bent suspension leg, well, I could then get another comparable suspension leg to put in the kit. So the kit was always complete with everything you ever needed. And obviously, as it came apart, we would know what was good and what was knackered type thing. So that worked quite well, actually, until Minari went bust. It was a good launch because a lot of parts that went on to Minari's would never have sold elsewise. No, nobody's going to buy a wiring loom for 33 or a SUD, you know, and you didn't really do drive shafts and things like that. Some of the stuff you just would never have sold, but they had it. And that left me with the body panels, which was another good seller if they were good because of the crash business that was going on. So, so when we started that, the partner and I, and I had a 33 1.7 Veloci sport wagon, which again, I loved. Although I think I had to put the bottom lip or the front bumper. I had to refiberglass that about eight times in its life. Had that used to tow. I used to tow with that too as well. That was uh, that was a great car. But talking about damaged bottom lips of front bumpers and bent suspension legs, I, I think we probably first met when you were at Old Windsor, and I had a an Alfred Sprint, and I I was always convinced that the parking area at Old Windsor was designed to generate business for suspension parts. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit. It was a bit of a bomb site. It was. That's a very polite way of putting it, actually. Yes, guy. Well, it looked like a scrapyard because it was a scrapyard. <laughs> In fact, because it was literally by the side of the Thames, whenever the Thames was high, we used to have alloy wheels as stepping stones to be able to walk about. I have no idea now, looking back, how I ever got any customers whatsoever, actually, let alone really nice cars coming in. Because, yeah, like you say, you'd turn in there and go, really? But no, I mean, we had SZs down there. We used to like quite current stuff, people who would just didn't get on with the dealers and they would come down and, and just give us their one-year-old, two-year-old cars. 
Uh, hi, hi. I've got this. I've got this vague recollection of a, a boxed BMC air filter for a, a boxer engine and an ansammeter exhaust on the wall behind the. Every time I came in, I was in danger of walking out with one or both. And I think I only ever bought the air filter. I think I ever bought the exhaust. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was a. Yes, I actually I found a picture somewhere of that a few years ago. You're right. Used to be. I used to have little temptations, didn't I? And little alloy wheels. That was always the goal: was to see if I could um, see if you you could do that. I do remember actually a chap sat there on a Saturday, and we were haggling over a gear knob <laughs> because he wanted a gear knob. And and he said, "Well, I've got all day." And I said, "Well, actually, I've got all day." So I think it was like a four-hour <laughs> negotiation for a fiver, which was uh, yeah, yeah. But it was all that was the Saturday group when you know you customers or friends well they all became friends had time and you'd come down and half the time people would muck in if we were pushing cars around they were all helpful and they'd come and help take that yeah it was it was good times actually so what, what sort of stuff did were you driving during that that period well my everyday transport was that 33 below yeah. sheet then i had a 164 three liter which which randomly a chap who bought all the parts off me for it, it wasn't a recorded damaged car it was just one he had bought it damaged and then mended it and actually it was lovely it was um so it was a it was a nine it was a g it was a 90 i think which i bought in 90 probably beginning in 94 so it's four years old my stood when i bought that was an 83 and 80 so that was four years yeah. old so the so the ones yeah three liter lusso and one of my good friends, uni, was getting married and I was his best man and he lived in Manchester then. And I used to go up and down from from where I am down here to there on like a Friday night for the weekend to help plan, blah, 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 and then come back. And you know, it was lovely. You could get in that car, even on a hard day's work on a Friday night, and you could get out at Manchester three and a half hours later and you just felt like you just got in it. And that was great. I really enjoyed that car. 164 was a big car, but it handled like a small front wheel yeah. drive. So again, same thing. If you wanted to play, you could play. It would do exactly what you asked it to do. Uh, unlike other bigger things like Mercs and things like that, you know, if you start any form of um, lateral forces, the thing would end up pointing the wrong way and things. So yeah, that was a fab car. Paul, who was working for me, he he bought a damaged 75 Twin Spark, which he then put a full zender kit on actually but we started to play with putting big wheels on and lowered suspension and answer exhausts and air filters and stuff and i bought a 33 which i then turbocharged and rolled the arches and put 17 inch wheels on and a big stereo and a late interior and blah blah jacked up the rear boot spoiler like the 155 touring cars and um had that for a little while that was nice it was completely unreliable though because we turboed it and then it just kept blowing head gaskets even put wheels rings around and stuff and it still blew it but oh actually it used to explode the diff up as well <laughs> yeah it was a lot of um a lot of research should have gone into that but it was good fun a real a real um car mechanics car but not something Absolutely. not something that most members of the public could <laughs> could really entertain no it was uh no, exactly. Like most mechanics go, that they're either hanging and, and you had to drive around the idiosyncrasies, otherwise it would just break and let you down. Or you knew it was going to break down anyway, yeah. so you always went out without continuing. Well, you had to get somewhere. Yeah, knowing, <laughs> knowing that it eats head gaskets and, and diffs is not so bad when you haven't got to pay the labour to keep replacing diffs and head gaskets. Exactly. Totally. That is Well, that's part of why 
yeah my car collection is way above my means that's my lucky bit of what i do i guess in that not being super successful and earning so much money is that but i always have cars above my station and that's always how it's happened because you can and you take advantage so like the first sz i bought i bought with a blown engine brilliant because there's no way i could have afforded to buy a proper one but when you priced up the cost of doing an engine rebuild on a on an sz back then then you know that was half the value of the car so i got a sz for half price rebuilt the engine myself and bob's your uncle fantastic what a way to achieve it so yeah that's 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 how it's moved on so we'll come we'll come on to sz's a bit later on but let's pick up the story in in old windsor how long were you there we were there from 94 uh we moved in 94 an emergency move and then i bought the place in maidenhead that we're still at in 2001 again that was a forced move which actually was a benefit when you look with hindsight but the the lovely place as you said they were going to flatten it and redevelop it clearly for housing it made sense so we all got served uh, eviction notices with a year's notice and some of the folk because it was a little industrial state full of little folk doing their things all sorts of different things it's a furniture place a place of built packing boxes um, a place that built double glazing there were a few car guys around anyway we um well i already had four people working for me then i think and I thought, well, I've got a responsibility. Some of them were just going to hang on until the last minute and see what happened. Yeah. And I couldn't do that. I had a business, had a lot of stuff as well. So started looking and that was real stress actually, because from like six months that you felt the time clock was ticking and uh, ended up in the end because there was no commercial premises available around where we were that was that was anything sensible slough industrial estate is just horrifically expensive. it still is horrifically expensive people still moving off it or going bust on it because they're you'd say they were greedy but i guess they're always full yeah. so they can't be they're just an expensive place to be so i i mail shotted out of the yellow pages every single garage in three lots of yellow pages with the old you know paper and, yeah. a, and an envelope and a, and a stamp and uh, i got three replies and did a deal with a guy who had that place and that was yeah that was quite scary actually i uh, when i bought that 2001 i remember getting the keys now i'd sold everything i had i remortgaged my house and the more and the bank made an error so i had 125 percent mortgage on my house because they'd forgotten about the existing mortgage and mortgaged that to the hill everything everything and i sold all my cars all my everything i could to to raise the funds to buy and i'm sat in the middle of the floor having got the keys with this empty workshop going what have i done slightly scary well no more than slightly scary and then six months later we just couldn't cope with the amount of work we had we were drowning in work it was um so it was fantastic i don't remember that building before it was was our frame, but I assume at one point from the sheltered bit out the front that it was a filling station at one point. It was. It was uh it was a petrol station. So it was a um Merco or somebody like that. I can't remember right. now. Um Elf or whatever. But Shell bought that oil company or fuel company out and then said, right, we're going to have only one position in each town in the in the UK. Right. So they analysed which one was the best station to have and kept it. Well the the shell down towards Slough, which is now next to that big BMW dealer, they kept that one 
and then they shut that one, this one, my one, uh, and it's and they put a caveat on it. In fact, that it could never be a petrol station again. Right. Which was obviously quite clever. They cleaned the site up. They did soil samples and they sucked all that. That was all before my time. Right. And then the the guy who he was the tenant at the time. He bought it off of Shell because they were then disposing of their assets, the ones they didn't want. Uh, and he had a workshop and an MOT station. And then the car sales bit was he sublet that to another chap. And then I came along really, and I bought it off of him. So it was a it was an equipped workshop when you took over. Yes, it was actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was even I, I we did a deal, and I I bought all the ramps and all the kit and the MOT station part of it everything so it was it was from the day i effectively changed address i was up and running in that place from day one yeah so there's not much left now though (laughs) 20 years later (laughs) everything's changed yeah yeah so we've we've grown there actually to move out i remember we got a 40 yard skip at the other place and paul loaded in 120 doors into this skip we threw away we had mountains of gearboxes, mountains of engines, because the local, what should we call, politely traveller community wanted used to come in and take scrap away. And I remember the mountain of gearboxes was taller than me, and the, and, and they and they came in in their truck and took like five loads to get rid of this stuff because we had to move out. It was a lot. It was a, you look back now and you think, goodness me, you know, a six foot high pile of transaxle gearboxes and. And the same sort of height of 105 engines and things like that. You see, yeah. oh, what a waste, what a waste. But yeah, so, be, you know, I, I reckon we broke over 150 33s. We must have broken 50 odd Bertonis, probably 175, 164s, 50, 60, something like that. I don't know. I don't know. I remember sending off like inch and a half high stacks of reg docks to DVLA saying, we've scrapped all this lot. That's- yeah, sad, but also good if I want to, you know. Yeah, you talked about um, the fact that people were bringing US sets in, in the old Windsor premises and, and, and the story of your first one. How did the, how did the business evolve into a, an SZ specialist? So when it first came out, actually, it probably wasn't directly when it first came out. The first time I saw one, so I used to get my parts from Greenford Service Station and Greenford Service Station worked awesome in terms of the part they they had the whole specialist market in within the m25 and around they they were because the guys in the parts department were all ex mechanics and they knew so if you rang up and said oh look i need a third gear for a 164 gearbox they go yeah great and you're going to need this 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 and this and you're like am i and they go yeah and you go okay and they go like if you don't use it bring it back every single time they were absolutely 100 percent. you always needed that and that's worth so much and they delivered yeah. i went up there and they had two sz's in the showroom one day one of which is i still remember it was high max was his reg number he had on it and i went oh oh look at that that's and i'm not going to say it was pretty i'm just gonna just awesome it's just like a, a beast funnily enough i only called it and i went i'm gonna have one of those so that was it and then what was it three years later or something i don't know the opportunity came and i had it and i went way great and they are i don't know why i do like them so much they're just brilliant they handle beautiful again they talk to you and you talk to it you become part of it so i was always enthusiastic and Paul, who was with me then, a key member, he 
obviously he was the rear wheel drive alpha guy, wasn't he? So um, he liked them and we became, we always, the one advantage of braking cars back then was you learned what was what and what was the same yeah. and what wasn't the same. So of course your knowledge grew and then it wasn't hard when people mention something like if you say, oh, I've, I need a such and such an essay, you go, yeah, actually that's off a 164 or, well, that's not quite a, you know, that's not quite a 75 part actually. It's, but you could take an 75 part and take your part and combine the two and you've done it. And then instantly you're, you're mending cars. A lot of people like mending cars rather than just throwing parts at them. Yeah. So I guess that's what happened. It grew from there, really. I, I had a few and, and then actually I, there was a time when I, I bought, I did a little thing with a, another chap and we, we brought, so this is pre-Euro, we brought cars in from abroad when the, when the exchange rates, when the pound was weak. Actually, was it the other way around? Anyway, we bought cars in from the, from Europe. Yeah. So I brought in some quite, ah, that was another opportunity in life to have cars way above your station. You know, we, we bought 355s, 348s, SZs, Integrales, had a Dodge Viper for a little while, <laughs> some GT. GT2, I think we had, and we had some other Porsches and stuff, proper lumpy cars, as I called yeah. them, all left-hand drive, and the market was great. I know Jamie was bringing in SZs at that time as well. Yeah, we had some of those come in, and the, in fact, that it was good fun. I had some great drives, and then it changed, and it went backwards. In fact, the last three cars we sold back to Germany, actually, because of the exchange rates going back the yeah. other way. So that brought more SZs into the my community, I suppose, whatever you want to call it. So we, I don't remember how many we did now because I wasn't tracking numbers back then. That came later when yeah. all of the, the following the history, because I can't even tell you the car number of my first SZ. I can still feel myself sitting in it, but I can't remember what number it was. It wasn't important, but they're also running one and owning one. It helps because you learn things like the expense of leaving it parked outside in the winter and, um, yeah. and, when things break, what commonly breaks. So so we did that. We've always had a few following, but we've always done current effectively when they wanted to leave the dealer to us until cars went effectively into the banger market. And then that was where we positioned ourselves. And generally we stopped when they came back out the other side. We didn't suit that side of the business originally. A sort of four to 10 years old, that kind of range. Yeah. And I mean, we were doing new to the back, but most of yeah. the time they always stayed at a dealer because you'd bought your car new first three years, especially they didn't tell you that you could go somewhere else for servicing and stuff. So the Alfisti or the, the existing customers who traded up again knew and often we would get those. But as a general rule, it was change of owner was when people yeah. start hunting for a different person to look after their car. So we would get from those. And that's why we flew, you know, that's just 156 time, early 2000s. And that was snap cam mills and blown engines and all of that stuff all the time. That was that was good times. And we I built a really strong business on that. And then gradually the SZ side of it grew. When you found there were things that you couldn't get then i would make the effort to either try and source them or start remanufacturing which of course then brings more people to you the challenge when you have two sides to a business is you have the should we say the restoration side and you have the day-to-day -day side yeah is that what commonly happens is you tend to neglect the restoration side because you think right we've got this booked in today and of course somebody's dropping their daily transport off so you're, you're like, right, well, they need it for three o'clock to pick it up to go and get their kids. So let's crack on with that one. When we finish that, yeah. we'll, uh, we'll go and do a bit more on one of the long-termers. Well, of course, the day would never, you know, the day would finish 
and then you go right well we've done our daily stuff we're going home now we're not going you know so they would get neglected really and i seem to get more and more people wanting us to do their sids mostly and other busso stuff as well actually because we do gta's and things and, and i'm a complete busso fan and we all are actually covid time was really the point because it, it was a struggle. I, I'd taken on a general manager to try and let him run the day-to-day stuff and me run the other side of the business. But again, the, the premises didn't, doesn't have enough physical size to have a significant restoration side because we're back to like yeah. three bays per vehicle um, and a modern bit. And COVID came along. Sitting at home, you had a mental realignment, as I think a lot of people did realise during that time. And I went, not looking after these people who are entrusting me with their cars properly. So what do I do? So I went from post-COVID, I went from 10 staff and to five staff. So we've done the last two years with just five of us. And we are, I've got three or four years work now, as said wise, already. And in fact, the other day we had a meeting and I said, we need to say we are taking on no more work, full stop, which is a bit scary. Mm. But we can't get through what we've got. We need to get on with it, finish it, and do some, and then start again type thing. And I'm actively looking now for the new premises. It does fun- sometimes feel when you, you see the, the SEDs in the showroom and then the, the number of SEDs that there are on the, on the ramps in the workshop that about a quarter of all the SZs in the country are in your on your premises <laughs> at any one time. <laughs> well, do you know, I was thinking before before this, I was thinking this morning, uh, that how many have we currently got? And I, I was doing a mental add-up. They're not all on site because I have a storage facility that we have uh, and obviously the body shop and stuff. And I think currently with 24 SZs, and three RZs. So bearing in mind, there was last time I calculated or counted up, assuming my data is correct, uh, 96 SZs in the country and 15 RZs in the country. So you're right. Actually, you're not far off, guy. <laughs> so it's my fault that you never see them on the road because they're all parked at Alpha <laughs> Brilliant. And, and you took over as the, the club's... Said registrar, how did that come about, and how long have you been doing that? Yes, so that was um, Paul Milbank. In fact, do you know, I can't quite remember whether I was invited or whether the opportunity was shown. And I, I just thought, well, I, I was semi doing it anyway, in a way, as in I had obviously with my customer base. Then I had data of who had what car, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I thought it was a natural migration. The challenge with that bit is, of course, if you run your own business, then you actually don't have a spare minute. So I I do beat myself up, and I think others beat me up too, um, in terms of it would be nice to contribute more from the club side of the asset bit in terms of when Paul Milberg had it, you know, they were they did run outs and stuff like that, which would be great, and I'd love to do that. I just I just don't make the time to do it, if that makes yeah. sense. But we do keep a good, very good database, and... I'd like to think I'm a resource. The runouts wouldn't be much good anyway, would they, given that a third of the cars are in your garage at any one time? <laughs> there wouldn't be many cars on the runouts. <laughs> we, could, we could have a runout from my place, up the road, pushing mostly, and then push them back in again and go, well, there we go, we did it, yay. <laughs> 
yeah, perhaps I'll have a big run out when I've finished the ball. Yeah, that'll be good, would it? Yeah, that's never going to happen. Do, you do tend to manage to get, what, half a dozen or so together for, for things like National Alpha Day. Yeah, which I think that's the most generally the, the maximum that's ever really achieved in the UK when I look back historically. Yeah, six or seven is a, is a good turnout. Hey, if you had 10, then you'd have 10 lines of red things instead of um, <laughs> six or seven. And, but... and I mean, you know, most people, if they're lucky, see one on the road a year. So seeing half a dozen together at the same time is, is not bad going. No, it, it's quite funny, actually, when um, when the weather's nice and there's cars outside and the workshop doors are open, the faces of some they just have random people and they'll pull up stop they've driven past and they stop they would they and they come back and they've got the phones out and they go oh my god look it's an s it's an sz or an sz as they call them or a zs as half the time and uh okay, i've never seen there's another one oh goodness there's another one crikey oh goodness hey look there's three oh my god and they're having some sort of yeah Meltdown. It is quite nice, really, because they're, they're all enthusiastic. If they've stopped, they're really enthusiastic. And it's an easy way to lose half an hour as you chat about cars. But yeah. it's so rare to see them on the road, isn't it? It's, uh, except in certain part of Maidenhead where they go up and down a certain bit of the road <laughs> regularly. <laughs> you talked about concentrating more on, on those kind of longer term jobs. What, what other plans have you got for the business over the next couple of years? We're looking at relocate i've got to really if i want to make it flow we need to look at change obviously we're not getting through the work there's there's two challenges to not getting through the work one is physically getting it done because i've got two really old school good i've got paul and another chap vito who's been doing alphas for 35 years or something he was ex-ramponi as well at one point both great guys literally you know they've got so oil in their blood I, i'd like to find another chap who is equally as good and it's quite a challenge in terms of getting the right person because actually I'd, I'd, it'd be good to have some young enthusiastic guys and we're not very good at teaching i've had many apprentices over the years but because you're always under pressure to get the work done it, it's difficult to take the time to look after those guys properly yeah i'd like to it's just it's it's difficult and i know a lot of the other people who in similar boats in terms of taking on the apprentices to teach they're enthusiastic they're great but you've got to look after because you've got to keep keeping them interested not give them the boring stuff to do all the time because you know yeah. you can they can do that so yeah that's it anyway that's part of the challenge would be nice to, to get that somebody else involved who's like that who's enthusiastic about that period of of vehicle too but that's restrictive from their point of view because we're we're not really planning on keying up for electric because i don't think it's going to fit we're going to be done by the time we have no busos left if that makes sense it's something we discuss and i i don't know but if we take you know so if you end up with more young staff and you don't train them for everything yeah then I feel like I'm being a bit irresponsible maybe and not giving them the full opportunity. So that's that's a difficult one. The other challenge in the whole thing is the stalling of of works in that if you if you need something and then you find that there's none, which is often happening now with SZs and obviously with some with that period of the stuff, you know, the 105 world has been remanufactured, is fully catered yeah. for. You yeah. build them brand new now. The, the stuff of the 80s and 90s is not yet catered. 
and it's different technology. It's not metal stamping. It's it's plastics and stuff. So and electronics and stuff. So it's, and I guess there's, there's also not the there's not the percentage of cars from that period still around that there were with with 105. So there's there's never going to be the demand for 75 parts that the, that there is for 105 parts. You are absolutely spot on, guy. Spot on. So some of the stuff when I look to remanufacture things. If I talk to a supplier, I'll give you a prime example, is the, which is a unique SZ part, but the, the seal that goes around the windows on an SZ is just a, a it's a PTFE, it's not actually rubber, extrusion. Yep. Great. So I've gone to, because I can't manufacture that myself, I, I go to a, a manufacturer and talk to them. And then they'll go, yeah, we can make the die for that. We can copy that and we'll make an extrusion uh, minimum quantity, two and a half kilometers. So that is every car left in the world three times. So, and then I'm like, well, I don't need that. Can you not do the Amazon model and do it on subscription? (laughs) (laughs) Sell everybody a windscreen surround subscription. Every two two years, you bring it back in and we'll change it again. That's it. You get a new one through the post. Here you are. Here's your your new one. Oh, I haven't taken my car out of the garage. Oh, it's a new one. (laughs) Brilliant idea. That's it, guy. You've sorted it. You've sorted that whole challenge. When when, when they extrude them, just uh, print, print an expiry date on them. (laughs) <laughs> I'll make it out of some form of, of biodegradable so that it just disappears. Yeah. <laughs> they go in and go, oh, oh I they need another that. windscreen. They do that anyway, don't they? <laughs> well, they do, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, everything Italian migrates back to its core <laughs> base, doesn't it? <laughs> so, yeah, that's the sort of challenge because, of course, you say, I only want 500 metres, say, and they'll go, well, it's exactly the same price because once they've made the, yeah. the tool, they have to fill a hopper full of raw granules and they've got to run the machine so they either run it and then scrap at the other end and give you what's left or or you have the whole lot so, you're, so that happens a lot with like you know i've made windscreens and i've i'm working on the rear the rear screen at the moment which i mentioned in the club may big challenge because the upfront costs are enormous how many am i going to sell you know i i this is the the bit where the personal side goes contradictory to the business side in the like i want to save every sz not quite sure why i have need to see the uh, italian psychiatrist for that but it does i can't go and spend say twenty thousand quid creating rear screens to sell three ever yeah. there's got to be ways around and uh, the nice bit is as technology is moving forwards like 3d printing 3d metal printing things like that there are better and better opportunities coming out for this sort of thing and that's quite exciting actually and if we can get involved in that and make it happen then it doesn't matter you know if you've got yeah. the if you've got the, the the shape scanned properly and this is the this is the bit it's not the printing it's the scanning and the and the creating the pieces the, the data the software to go yeah. into that which is ever evolving but a decent scanner is is a fortune still so you sub the scanning, but again, it's still a lot of money. So you've still got to make that right. When the when scans get down to you know a thousand quid or something for you buying a scanner of your own that actually works, fantastic. We can all imprint whatever you want, can't you? Go, oh, I've yeah. broken that clip. Okay, let's find a. There's a good one. Scan that, put it through, print a new one, plug it in. Job done. That I'm looking forward to that, and then workshops will look very different you won't walk into the bit where there's your lathe and your milling machine you walk into your clean room and there'll be a line of different printers of metal ones and plastic ones and rubber ones and we talked about 
your early car history, and I know this is always a, a difficult one for people in the trade because you know, what counts as, as your car, but what's what's the current Alpha Fleet? Oh, uh, yes, very fluid, isn't it? That is a toughie, as I, as I know the other guys say, is what do you classify as yours and what's not yours? So technically, the fleet is my other half. We've got a Giulietta Cloverleaf that she uses every day. I've got an SZ and an RZ, obviously. I have uh, an 8C, which is my, one of my dream cars. Again, same thing applied with that, with the SZ, is the day I saw it, I went, I'm having that, having one of those. So it's, it's a challenge to have that because it is way above my station, but I don't have a pension. There's my pension, which is another flaw in my plan is to, to have a beautiful car collection to play with when I retire. But So my, my last question is usually, and, and you've already said that you've got one of your dream cars, any alphas that you would love to own and haven't owned yet? Plenty, but ones that I realistically would own. You know, there's... there's yeah, I'd, lo- I'd love my, my ultimate... Lottery winning collection is obviously I'd have an 8C Monza, I'd have a Type 33 Stradale, and I'd have a TZ2. Then I'd have the 8C I've got. Then I'd have a Julia Cloverleaf to run about in. But actually, I've got a GTA 147 that I love to bits as well. I'm not very good at this remembering what cars I've got. That sounds really arrogant, but that is not like that. It's just if you live and breathe and drowned by alphas you forget what's yours and what's not yours if that makes sense so i think i think three of your top four then were our top three when we did the the top 50 alpha podcast a couple of months ago and and the only reason the ac monza wasn't in there was because it was post-war so i think your your dream car collection is is in in line with a lot of other club members which sadly is why there's so many millions of quid yeah. It would be nice if there were a tenner because I'd still want them. Absolutely. So I'm really lucky, I think, that I have, you know, an 8C because it's not, I've not had it very long. That would have been it without a question. I yeah. think it is one of the most beautiful cars ever. Yeah. Yes. Just stunning and sounds beautiful. Yes. Yeah. So, and I know everybody slags off its driving, handling. I don't care, actually because it handles like every other big front-engine rear-wheel drive car I've ever driven, really. It's squirmy on the back end, if you ask it. It's not meant to be a flat-out sports car. It's meant to be a GT car. And you just feel a million dollars when you're in it. I don't care. It's beautiful. It's just absolutely, yeah. Brilliant. I think that's a good place to end. Thank you very much for that. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much, Andrew. Thanks, Guy. Always good. Look after yourself. Well, that's all we have time for this week. I hope those of you lucky enough to get along to Spring Alpha Day had a great time and listened to this episode as you drove home. As usual, we'll be back in two weeks' time on Sunday the 8th of May with a special second anniversary edition entitled There's Still No Such Thing as a Brera Quadrifolio. Episode 57 will be available to download from the club's website, from Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, stay safe. <laughs>